again, it's Phil Ryan here at The Story High with today's podcast. As we always try to point out, our stories are deliberately kept short. On the main site, you can listen to longer ones if you like. But for the purpose of our podcast, we think you can sort of dip in and out as you move around. And the idea is to give you something to just give you a break from the day. Now, the first story from today's always three-story collection, it's called In Oils. And we think it's a bit of a clever one. Happy listening. He couldn't believe it, and he stood back and let the enormity of it all set in. What a year. The exhibition, the success, the the five commissions, the prizes, and now this. And he looked around the large painter's studio. It was a dream. It was breathtaking. He almost felt like crying. Of course, he had his father to thank. It was an old contact coming up trumps. The price of the place, completely doable. And the impact on his work, he felt, would be massive. Before he'd hired spaces and they'd not been cheap. Sometimes he'd even used the shed at his parents' house. But now, here he stood in an old Victorian painter's studio, original features, massive skylights and windows, all in really up-to-date repair. There was even a small bedroom and a kitchen area. It was just so cosy. But the view to die for, uninterrupted, out across the sea. And if you stood a bit close to the window and looked down, you could see the wide, long, sandy beach. Children, dogs, walkers. The place seemingly untouched by commerciality. The Norfolk coast, a real hidden gem. Windy sometimes, rainy, but magnificent in terms of light. His parents lived in Cambridge and currently he was staying with them. But now he had this place, just a one-hour drive. The studio was part of a building with five other studios and the agent, his agent, had made it clear that it was a long-term rental and she hinted how lucky Mary was to even have been offered it, the original owner turning out to be an old colleague of his father's. Well, whatever and however, it had just turned out perfectly and come Monday, he would be in and he could start work. Fenella had been his agent for two years now nurturing him, supporting him. She was amazing. And Mario sat and contemplated the canvas, the smell of oil heavy in the air. This was his second private commission. Very good money, thanks to Fenella. The first commission had been a small piece, but this one, much bigger, more important, he felt. She smiled at him and cocked a critical eyebrow. Well, honestly, my love, it's simply divine, she murmured, half under her breath. She stared again at the image. A woman looked directly at the viewer, her blonde hair almost like spun gold, broad brushstrokes, bold, uncompromising, Mario's signature style. He'd first studied at the Florence School, learning the ways of the classical painters, but then he'd added his own take, a bravura, the critics had said, an energetic application of paint one had opined. The first exhibition, well... It had been an unbridled success. Out of 14 canvases, 12 had sold within an hour. Fenella nodding quietly at the news. She believed in him, and he felt it. But now, at last, the money was good. It was getting better year on year. Hence, him now being to afford this jewel of a place he now stood in. Mario knew he was a painter, 
He loved to paint. Just it kind of went to another place, his father called it. It was true. Often he appeared to not even be present. His arm confidently moving, eyes narrowed, not stopping. The paint slapping, spilling all across the canvas. In one radio interview, he'd even compared it to being in a trance. But now, this second commission, the client, a very wealthy hedge fund manager, and he wanted it as a gift for his wife. And Fenella, she'd said nothing, their eyes meeting briefly. He was a young painter. He needed the money. But most importantly, he needed the new work. Eventually, he drifted off and she pointed to the door and he turned back to the canvas. He didn't even hear the door close. Six hours passed. On he worked. Somewhere in the distance, a dog barked and then he blinked, standing back. His neck ached and he felt hungry. Well, uh, yeah, that was enough for the day. His old tutor, signature for Chile, drumming into them all. Know when to stop. Know when to start. Leave energy. And his mouth suddenly watered. Yeah, noodles with oyster sauce. Hmm. The next days passed pleasantly. He didn't see or hear any of the other artists. He saw cars and a bicycle outside, so they must have all been there hard at work. The thick Victorian walls masking the sound. It was an amazing place and the light had been magnificent. The Kharkov Commission was nearly done. In record time, he felt, Fenella had agreed and he sipped his tea as he pushed the door open. There it stood, the canvas, sitting proudly in the centre of the room. And then he froze. What? The woman gazed out from the canvas, Mrs Karkov, her face soft and almost angelic, her blonde hair framing it perfectly, her eyes an icy blue, piercing, bold. The velvet collar of her jacket looked so soft you felt you could reach out and feel it and the large gold and jewel-encrusted cross brightly reflected the light. But her neck, her long, graceful neck, the, the painted run, he thought. But how? He looked upwards, the sun perhaps, water dripping in. Oh, that was ridiculous. Small, dark patches now ran in a circle, bluish, giving the appearance almost of bruises. The woman's slender neck on the painting, now heavily marked. And he breathed in heavily. Damn! Oh, God! Fenella was coming to pick this up tomorrow. And he cursed under his breath. Jeez. He looked at Mrs. Karkoff. She had a strong face, middle-aged, very unlined considering her makeup flawless. He'd taken to her immediately when they'd sat making preliminary sketches. He'd taken pictures and they talked. He had to get to know his sitters. That was part of his process. But one thing had caught him. Her eyes, sad, briefly. In one test photo, he'd seen it. Her expression, normally unflinching, noble, full of grace. But those eyes, far away, almost tragic. She'd praised his work. She'd seen the first exhibition. And she was a genuine person. And when she spoke, it wasn't in a fake way. And he found her words very moving. She'd said his ability to paint was a gift from God, showing the truth in a way, God's truth, taking the imperfect clay and wrapping it in love. She'd repeated herself. It was just God's truth. And she'd fingered the large golden cross she was wearing, 
a wintry smile playing across her face. She gives me this for my protection. Her heavy accent not disguising her belief or meaning. You are simply his messenger, Mario. From his heart to your hands. I can hear, I can see him in your work. And he protects me. It's more than paint, my dear. Much more. Wow, he'd thought. Wow. And he'd struggled to answer. And he was diplomatic as he could, but he didn't really want to believe in that kind of thing. He never had. But still, what a thing to be told. And Fenella had smiled. Yup, she'd said. She was a smart and deep woman for sure. But I'm your agent, so you have to believe in me more. And then she'd laughed and stroked his cheek. Believe in me, darling. He picked up his board and brush. The neck, the blue paint. It was all fixable, but still. He looked up at the skylight. Water, maybe? Sunlight? No. Oh, God. He shook his head. The painting now drawing him back. His brush lifting almost automatically. And he went to work. He sighed and stepped back. Great. He'd repaired the damage now. And it was time to finish. But best of all, it was time for a barbecue. He stepped outside as a soft wind blew his collar and he shivered and looked round. There were groups of people there, standing in clumps, chatting and laughing. It was wonderful. Apparently, a note had been pushed under his studio door and the other artists, it said, always had a monthly gathering. Bring drinks and nibbles, it had said, eight o'clock in the small garden area. And now here he stood, next to a fire in a brazier, a barbecue grill next to it. Something smelled delicious. When he'd arrived, he'd found some tables and he put his bottle of wine and shop-bought quiche down slightly embarrassed. A smiling lady called Jane had taken it from him and then she led him around, introduced him to people, laughing and chatting to everyone. He was amazed. He knew who she was. Dame Jane Edwards from the Royal Academy, a world-renowned seascape artist. Her work sold for thousands often displayed in major collections, huge canvases, massive, bright and full of energy and light. He did love her work. He was honest. It was great work. He knew he was slightly in awe of her. She was just such a lovely woman. She introduced him as a hot new thing, which brought laughter from everyone, and he shyly acknowledged it, and he knew it was meant with kindness. But what a night. It was good conversation, nice wine, other painters... But he was really tired and it was getting late and he didn't actually feel like going back to his parents in Cambridge so he decided he'd crash in the small bedroom. It was very comfortable in there. His mother had kitted it out. She'd gotten a brand new Ikea mattress, a lovely duvet and she'd fussed around the place spoiling him just like she always did and gratefully he lay down and pulled the blanket around himself, sleep finally claiming him around 3am. The noise of the key in the lock startled him and he glanced at the clock. Whew, he must have been tired, he'd slept in. And his head ached slightly, well, last night's wine. And there from the far hallway he could hear Fenella, her cheery tone. I have coffee and croissants, darling. He smiled, what a star. And he shook his head. She'd come for the Kharkov painting, yes of course. It had sat there for a week now, under a muslin cloth in the corner. 
ready to be taken away. And smiling, he took the coffee from her and walking across the studio, he pulled the cloth away. Ta-da! He stared. Not again. The paint discoloured again. This is ridiculous. Fenella made conciliatory noises. It's the bloody paint, he'd said. He'd, he told about the other time with the next stuff and uh, he, he was going to ring the supplies. This was outrageous. Uh, he'd fix it, of course. He was, he was sorry, but it would take a while. Fenella stroked his shoulder. Be calm, darling. It's not the end of the world. Leave it to me. I'll, I'll make a call. And she kissed him loudly on the cheek. And then she took a quick snap of the picture and left. And he looked back at the painting. This was mad. Now, two huge blooms of blue were clear now, dark, almost purple. One on the right temple and one under a right eye. The white and the under pink, they must have been unstable. He, he mixed it himself. Maybe the base coat, the brown umber. But he felt surprised. Blenkinsons were famous for their quality. But this... The second time, this just, oh God. Look, he'd call them later, he thought. And now muttering under his breath, he went back to work to fix the damage. It took two days for the new paint to dry. And Jane had actually popped by from the big studio next door. He'd felt very flattered. The diddlery guys were coming for the car cloth painting. And there it was, back with its pristine splendour. And Jane had been so complimentary, banding around words like ephemeral beauty and dreamlike. She'd actually picked up on the large golden cross, its shimmering presence. The piercing eyes, she said. The slight sadness, she'd seen it. The velvet jacket too, just wonderful. Her keen, painterly eye practised after years as an artist. And he really appreciated her taking the time. And she'd laughed and said it was her who felt privileged. He'd felt very pleased. He couldn't wait to tell Fenella. He knew she'd make something of it. It was just how she worked. And then someone knocked on the door. Oh, Jane's assistant. She was needed, if that was all right. And smilingly, she bustled out the room, telling him again, your work is wonderful. And then he was alone. The studio now empty, just his easel at its centre, a new blank canvas on it, pristine and white, waiting as a huge shaft of golden sunlight streamed down onto it. Coffee, he thought. An hour passed. He felt low. He always felt low when the commission left. It was a strange feeling of loss. He'd poured everything he'd had into it. His heart and his soul. And now it was gone. He knew that was how it worked. Fenella had talked to him about it. It wasn't unusual. Not to create a connection with a sitter. To see them so clearly and in terms of what could be. And then to make a reality of it, she said. In oil. On canvas. Your heart and soul had gone into it. Never forget that. You'd taken a tangible thing and you'd somehow captured the intangible. And it, he knew it was true, but it was gone now. And suddenly his phone rang. Fenella's voice sounding strange, almost muted. This was not like her. She seemed out of breath and she told him to go to his laptop, tap on the BBC homepage, click on the news. And he did as she said. He froze. It was the first image. Mrs. Karkoff, smiling in some kind of publicity photo. A recent photo, the announcer said, taking a charity event she'd hosted, raising millions for orphans. 
and then he gravely said a warning and the next piece of video should not be viewed by people of a nervous disposition. The video was grainy, dark almost, taken from a corner, a security camera, high up somewhere. But the image then went very sharp. It was a bedroom, clearly, large and opulent, and a woman was seated at a dressing table brushing her hair. Then a man entered, a, a large man. The video had no sound. The man moved towards her, his hands now waving around, and they both appeared to be shouting. Then, suddenly, the man lunged forward and seems to be seen assaulting the woman, shaking her from side to side, and the woman lifts her hands to protect herself, and a minute passes, and suddenly he seems to just drop to his knees and fall sideways out of shot. And then the video just ended, the screen going black. Mario drew in his breath. What the hell was this? Fenella's voice came back on the line. She still sounded muted, but now full of wonder. It's all over the news, my love. That video. That was our Mrs. Karkov, your sitter. It hit him instantly. The woman in the film, yes. It was Mrs. Karkov. He recognised her hair, her neck. The announcer went on, now talking about assault. Mr. Karkov being under investigation for tax fraud. He barely heard a word of the report and Fenella continued. I, I, I told her what happened, darling. You know why the picture was late? You know, the, the, the paint. I know you don't like it, but I had to show her a picture. You know, the damage. She was very calm. I told her all about what had happened and, you know, the neck area, like you told me, the problem with the paints. <sighs> she sounded like she was confused. Fenella paused. Look, I, I'm sorry about this, but you have to understand she was very understanding. The fee was paid in full immediately. Look, I'll get the new one to her as soon as she's out of hospital. Poor lamb. But don't worry, she's fine, she's fine. That brute of a husband. Do you know he was having an affair? And apparently she found out and threatened to divorce him. That's why he attacked her. That's what the video was. Captured apparently by their internal security system. Which was pretty lucky for her, don't you think? Her voice got smaller and quieter. But the funny thing is, what saved her? Remember that cross of hers? Well, in the struggle to get him off her, it just went into his heart like a dagger. And amazing, what a stroke of luck. But now he couldn't answer, for the laptop screen had filled with a new image. It was Mrs. Karkoff, this time starkly lit, a police photograph judging by the numbers and information at the bottom. And there she sat, staring straight into the lens, in exactly the same position as in her portrait, her blonde hair shining despite the bad lighting, her icy blue eyes, calm, but almost with a hint of triumph, all sadness gone, and her neck ringed with dark marks, a line of dark circles, her face marked with dark blotches, almost purple, one on her right temple, one under her right eye. And his mind spun. It was the same position. It was the same position, but he'd painted over it. And then it came back to him. 
what she'd said at that first sitting. From his heart to your hands. I can hear God in your work. He protects me. It's more than paint, my dear. Much more. And he turned back to the canvas, blank and white and inviting. The sunlight now even more pronounced. From God to his hands. And he looked, his mind now filled with wonder. To be honest, it never amazes me the way that people can express their love for each other. It's rather wonderful, I think. Anyway, stop my musing because it's time for the second story. And we think this one's a real doozy. If you've ever been flat hunting, finding a new home, you're going to love this. And it's called Finders Keepers. And a quick spoiler, if you are flat hunting, watch out what you get. He looked around the flat. Nice. Everything was out now and put away. He didn't have that much stuff, but it didn't matter. The place was fully furnished. It was really nice. A good size. Two bedrooms. A good price too. Actually, an amazing price considering. Way below normal London price, but who cared? Now he could easily afford it. It had quality furniture, mirrors, pictures, little sculptures. He glanced at them all. Eclectic, the agent had said. He didn't care. It was roomy. Handy for work, quiet, on the end of a block, with a small garden. It was perfect. He sipped his coffee. This was his second week. He hadn't seen the neighbours, but that didn't really bother him. He was a private person. He kept to himself. Besides, people were a pain generally, like those twats at work, wankers. Was asking to drink some barbecues. He always had a bunch of excuses. His elderly mother, who didn't exist. His sister, who didn't exist. In fact, he preferred his own company. He always had. He'd been a solitary child. The door buzzer suddenly hummed. Annoyingly, the place didn't have a door entry system. He'd maybe look into that. And now he grabbed his keys off the hook behind the door and stepped into the small hallway. Briskly, he opened the main door. It was a courier with a parcel. But he couldn't understand the bloke. No, it wasn't for him. No, he hadn't ordered anything. And the guy's English was terrible. And it wasn't helped by the fact he'd kept his helmet on. You couldn't even see his mouth, let alone see what he was saying. And the guy said a name. Mr. No. He couldn't stand him at all. Poor bastard. The guy was speaking like he was a child. Mr. Chilvason. Ah. It occurred to him. It must be the past tenant. He'd found some letters when he'd first moved in. He just binned them. And he just kept shaking his head, with the courier standing his ground. Parcel? Parcel? He held it out. He was about to tell the guy it was for the past tenant when an idea came to him. Maybe it was something good, valuable even. The box looked expensive, fancy packaging. And then in a flash, he squiggled a line on the guy's pad, grabbing the parcel and closing the door in one fluid movement. Sweet, he thought. Now excitement rising in him. Maybe it was something good. He sat down inside the flat. It had happened before, at the last place. He'd got a really nice juicer. Finders, keepers. He still had it. Free stuff, lovely. And now he carefully cut the box open. It was full of bubble wrap. What? Okay, he pulled it out and now looked inside. What was this? And he tugged it out, his heart sinking. It was just a curved bit of metal or plastic. Very light. He couldn't tell which. And he turned it around. 
It was weird. It just looked like a piece of model railway track. And there was a thin groove in it that ran all the way round one edge. Something slotted into it. Maybe Skeletrix or something. Some new design. He'd actually had one as a kid. The old man unusually generous one year. Probably drunk. Oh, well. He felt disappointed. And he put it back in the box. And then he went and put it in the small spare bedroom. Oh, well. Some you win, some you lose. Then his phone pinged. Ah, work calling. And now sitting, he turned his laptop back on, with the afternoon now rolling by. He was into his 30th email when a door buzzed again. He went outside. It was the same courier, again, with another box. Well, that was a bit weird. He'd only just delivered one. Ah, well. But this time, he just signed it and took it closing the door in the man's face. He didn't want to make him suspicious, so he went back inside quickly and put it down next to the other one. It didn't hurt really, but it wasn't worth opening, he knew that. It was just disappointing. And now he sat back down, the Iverson account on his back. Annual report time. This was going to be tedious. He worked on, and outside the sun blazed through the window, and he glanced at his watch. Yeah, why not, he thought. Get out in the sun, get some rays. And he stood up, and getting his sunglasses from the bedroom, he went outside. One of the benefits of working from home was it was half term, and his boss had two small children. Christ knows she went on about them all the time, and he always made sympathetic noises. He couldn't have cared less, really. But play the game, he thought, play the game. She'd be tied up. She said as much in yesterday's email, and then he grinned. While the cat's away, the mouse can play. And now, stepping out into the street, he went out along the road. Lovely. Check out the local shops. Cake and a Claire. Yeah, just the ticket. As he returned, he checked his phone. He'd been out three hours. Nothing, no messages. <laughs> he was in the clear. And as he walked up his path and turned the key in the door, he saw them immediately, standing outside the front door. It was another package. Fuck me, he thought. What's going on? A neighbour must have taken it in. And it was the same as the others. Nice packaging, expensive looking, light. And now, yawning, he slid it on top of its cousins. He'd just chuck them in the bin later. Back to the Iverson stuff. He had to get it done. But the day was passing slowly and he wasn't in a rush. Eventually, the evening arrived and he slid a ready meal into the microwave. He couldn't be bothered to cook. <sighs> But the kitchen was really nice, brand new looking almost. Nobody had ever been in it. The last tenant, <laughs> not a cooking fan. And absentmindedly, he pulled a plate from the cupboard. Bzzzt, bzzzt, the front door. What? What? What now? And he glanced out the window. What the hell? It was that courier again. This was getting crazy. What, four times in one day? He picked his keys and went out again taking the package, ignoring the man and closing the door in his face. This was stupid, he thought. His food was getting cold and he put the parcel in the room on top of the others. But now it was time for dinner and picking a beer from the fridge, he sat down to eat. It was movie time. That night as he lay in bed, he started to think about the last tenant. Mr. What was his name? Mr. Parcel Guy. Uh, Mr. Chilverson. Well, he was obviously some sort of collector or hobby person. But it's ridiculous. He'd obviously forgotten about changing his address, the idiot. All those packages must be costing a fortune. 
He'd moved himself twice in the last three years, but he'd had his mail directed. It was a sensible thing to do. And as he lay back on his pillow, he knew he wouldn't want to move from here. Not if he could help it. It was really nice. And best of all, the agent had said the contract would just roll over. Sweet. The man had been vague about the owners, they always were. But the place was high-end, though. You could tell. The furniture, all quality stuff, not the usual Ikea shit. And he rolled to his right. The bed, soft, warm. He grinned to himself in the darkness. He really got lucky this time. He's never going to leave this place. That next morning, he cursed as he poured his cornflakes. Damn, hardly any milk left. That wouldn't last the day. And he grunted. Oh, well, not a bother. He found a great little corner shop just five minutes away. Bit of fresh air wouldn't hurt. And as he pulled the front door open, he stopped and froze. What the fuck? Boxes. Six of them, neatly stacked. All for Mr Chilverson, outside the front door. The courier guy, same as before. Hmm, this was nuts. And off he went to the shop. And on his return, he picked them all up, stacking them with the others in the spare bedroom. One of them longer than the others, being a lot more heavy. <sighs> he thought this was just ridiculous. He'd been a lot later. But then his stomach rumbled. Right, he thought, forget about that. Milk, coffee, then get on with work. An hour passed and he steadily worked through his emails, his box jammed, and methodically he made calls and tick boxes. If he was honest, he didn't really like his job, he didn't care, and nobody in the office cared either. He wasn't part of their little clique. He'd even once heard one of them call him the loner in the old coffee room. Well, screw them, screw them and their little emojis and shared YouTube videos. It was just a job, nothing more. Do the work as little as you could and take the money. That was it. That was what life was about. Whatever they thought. Suddenly, he thought about the boxes. That was fucking mad. Poor old Mr Chilverson must have spent a fortune, the prat. Then his phone pinged. The boss, unavailable till Thursday. Great. He could probably go out later then. Nice time for a bit of a skive. He'd done the Iverson stuff, but she didn't know that. He always got the work done much quicker than he told them. And he never told that bitch. She'd only give him more. That was the benefit, he thought, of the corporate culture he was in. That and working from home now. But the boxes, they filled his head again, nagging at him. What the hell was that Mr Chilverson thinking? Then it struck him. Maybe they were set. Yeah, something worth flogging. Dah. Fuck it, he thought. And turning his laptop off, he stood up and went and got the big scissors from the kitchen. It took him 15 minutes to open all the boxes. Their packaging lay behind him in a pile of cardboard boxes. And he picked them up and going outside, he rammed them into one of the empty green bins. Make sure the place was empty, he thought. Don't want any evidence. Once he got back inside, he laid all the contents out in a neat line. There were around 12 of those lightweight grey pieces. The kind of railway track thing, like the first one he'd opened. And they were curved and thin. Then there was a long heavy grey box... Solid, same material, just much heavier. Weird. It had two handprint-looking indentations on either end. Hmm, maybe it was a sculpture of some sort. He stared at it all. Hmm, this was a puzzle. Hang on, the flat pieces had a row of tiny square holes. Plus, he could see little protruding square bits. He looked a bit closer. Wait a minute. And lifting two pieces of it, 
he clicked it together and they slotted in, snapping shut. Right, so this is how they worked. Very quickly, he put them all together and now he had a perfect circle, each groove now lining up with the next. Pfft, a bit boring looking really, you wouldn't call that art. And then he stood back, looking at the heavy box. Wait a minute. Yes, it wasn't a box. It was a plinth. Yeah, it was a plinth. And he laughed out loud. How cool. It was a sculpture. So he then snapped the circle straight onto the box and there it stayed, absolutely firm. He stood back. It's a bit plain. Not his cup of tea, but what was the point? Maybe, maybe you could put it on eBay or Facebook. Why not? It must be worth something. He looked at it again. The thin plinth material was kind of shiny and he stroked it and oddly it felt very cold. And reaching forward, he put his hands towards the two handprints. He narrowed his eyes. Wait a minute, a thought struck him. I wonder if my hands fit. And very carefully, he pushed his palms onto the plinth. And suddenly, the grey circle of track lit up, a bright light blinding, a noise now like tearing paper, and suddenly he felt himself dragged forward, his skin now almost on fire, burning, burning, flooding his entire body, the pain beyond description, and then he vanished. The grey circle seemed to shimmer, and then it vanished. The kitchen countertop now completely empty. The agent coughed, and Steve glanced up at him. Wow, this place was amazing. Two bedrooms, great price. Yeah, really good price. Yeah, it's a good price considering. Any any reason it's so low? And the agent slowly shook his head. No, no, we just think it's fair. The owners aren't greedy. And they both laughed. Plus, you can see the quality of everything. And the agent airily waved his hands. The furniture, the beds, the fittings. And he said, oh, plus the artwork. Not to everyone's taste, possibly, but inoffensive, in my opinion, and quite characterful. Steve mentally sighed. He'd heard all that agent bullshit before. Anyway, the guy looked like a prick. Probably was. Probably gay too, the sicker. If he was honest, Steve didn't care. Fuck him, he just wanted a cool flat. And this was it. The price was amazing. Whoever gave this up was an idiot. Also, he'd seen a parcel in the hallway when they'd come in with the old address on. He thought to himself, I can distract the guy when we leave. Then I can take it. Anyway, it's all about finders keepers, right? And then he let his eyes drift over the pictures in the room and he pointed. Wow, they're pretty cool. This one's nice. He'd seen a large picture on the third wall in the lounge. Tall and wide, the frame of thick dark black lacquer. And he looked forwards. Yeah, it looks like some kind of movie artwork. You know, sci-fi like Marvel or Star Wars. Yeah, nice. He thought he'd best play along. The picture was vibrant. A vast star-filled universe. Bright colours, planets and stars, a huge darkness. And hanging in the very top corner, a spider-looking creature, huge, malevolent, huge serrated fangs, metal legs, dripping some sort of goo, there, placed on some web structure. Steve thought, yeah, that was clever. It looked like it was almost moving. And he stepped closer to peer at it. It was really weird and creepy. And then he saw it, dotted on the web structure, a series of small grey circles, pinned in place, lit up almost, and he could see in every single circle was a face, detailed, agonised, all screaming in terror, and he turned away back to the agent. 
Fucking hell, creepy or what? But he shrugged. He cared. It's just a stupid picture. And he held out his hand. Yeah, it's perfect. I'll take it. I have to confess, we really love that one. Back to our little writing ideas that we sometimes throw in. Writing is, in fact, a bit like, I don't know, yoga or meditation, because it's a place you go where you lose yourself for a while. You can't think about anything else but the actual thing you're writing. So I think it's really good. If you can, try and give it a bash. Writing is really good fun. Maybe wear headphones or earbuds. Just sit without distraction of anything. Turn the phone off, leave it somewhere in another room and just concentrate maybe for one hour every evening or maybe a half hour. Get into that rhythm pattern, as we always say. Today's, well, it's an idea, I don't know. It's a trip down memory lane. Yeah, 500 words. Just find a little memory from whenever Write it in 500 words. Again, with these things, we think it's lovely. You can share it with your friends and family. It's a very, very nice way to remind them that they're in your thoughts as well. Well, enough of that. It's time for the final story today. And it's called Rostov's Way, and it's got pirates in. The sea was dark, angry. Foam crashed high into the air, and Rostov's men trembled. The ship seemed tiny, fragile, on, on, he roared, his fierce hawk-like face snarling, and the wheelman hung on for dear life, lashed as he was to the huge wooden spar. They'll never follow us here, the boatswain nodded, his face calm, impassive. The captain was never wrong, he knew that. He'd served them fifteen years now, proudly, Mother Russia far away. They'd been at sea for years now, brief port stops along the way, and their secret. But right now, the very air sang, a howling gale, cold and fresh. They were pirates, now being chased. It didn't matter by who, the reason's always clear. The treasure, the booty, the gold coins, millions of them, Spanish to cats, French bullion, Austrian statues, Indian jewels, silk, spice, silver and gold. The governments hated them, a bounty on all their heads. Rostov the Russians, the highest. The boatswain lifted his spyglass. The last following ship had finally veered away, the wind too much for their rigging. The captain was right. The sea here was too much for all but the bravest, the smartest, the most foolhardy, the maddest. But they had a secret. Safe port, not too far away. A hard sow, yes, but no one could follow. None but Rostov. No maps existed, not any they'd found. His cabin empty of charts for the place. But somehow the captain knew, always, somehow, steering them true. The boatswain smiled to himself as the wind sang around them. They'd passed through the worst now, the long day passing, and along they raced, the ship almost flying, fast and true. And there, just in the distance, they could see it, the key rock, a tall, thin, granite spindle, it seemed to rise from the ocean almost to the sky itself. The marker, the island a few leagues further. It was uncanny. 
Rostov, a magician, the captain, every single time finding it like a needle in a haystack in the middle of a vast grey rolling ocean. The lookout cried out and the men on deck turned. Home safe. That was the name they'd given it. An unprepossessing rock almost, merely a few leagues wide, with a hidden lush valley right at its centre. The entry inlet only accessible at one point. One way in and one way out. Then Aninska, their ship, pulled by boat up a freshwater channel to finally moor in a small lake Hidden. Very clever. Stories regularly flew around. Fantastical. How had he found it? Rostov had ridden to it on the back of a dolphin. Rostov had floated there on a huge torn sail in a hurricane. However, whatever had happened, they knew one thing. No one could find them, their island. Not at home safe. Their settlement, best of all, their treasure, buried, hidden, by Rostov, and only he knew where. It was somewhere out on the vast island. It kept them loyal, he said. It kept him alive, thought the bosun. But none would dare move against the captain. None. Suddenly, the captain's cabin door flew open, and Nastasia appeared, Rostov's woman, tall, Covered in tattoos, fabulous silks and jewellery, a diamond headdress, wild and fierce. No one knew where she was from, but every man was in love with her, the boatswain included. Who wouldn't be? She was womanhood itself. The settlement was a half day's march, fresh supplies, clean water, fresh meat, and best of all, a soft bed. And as they walked, the men sang, their voices ringing out in the stillness, the seabirds wheeling high above their heads, and Rostov led from the front. He was a fearsome sight, his black pistols by his side, five strung about him, two long Chinese swords on his back. He was tall, rangy, powerful. The boatswain had seen him fight. He was like an army of one. The captain has saved his life, Three times now. He'd been with him from childhood. Now, proudly, he was his right-hand man. The captain had made him, made his life, and he knew it. He loved him. He was his forever, his captain, brave, true, and loyal. He knew the men all felt the same. He was their captain. They all agreed with him, and none challenged him. On they strode, and soon the last hill fell away. Home safe, the green valley stretching out before them, the lookouts heralding their arrival, and soon people streamed up the hill to greet them, wives, children, old crew, and Rostov grinned, his eyes shining bright. Home safe, he screamed, the men echoing his cry as arms embraced them. The settlement was sprawling, houses and barns and fields, and it sat by a wide, clear river, a short forest stretching behind it, for all life was there, fresh water, fruit, vegetables, fish, birds, all gave life. The cleverest part being the old crew, peasants originally, 
recruited in Mother Russia, farmers, labourers, used to the ways of the country. And once they left the pirate deck forever, they came here and settled and had children, some with wives. There were whores as well. No man was left without company. And the population rose and fell. Some left, but most stayed. Many settled forever. Yes, it was a hard place, but it was safe, fair. None went hungry, none lived in fear. For this was home safe, their place. Thanks to Rostov, their provider, their saviour, their captain. Their ship, the Naninska, had dropped anchor. She'd been rowed up the wide creek and the old crewmen went to watch over her, bringing inland half a league and they hit her and camouflaged her and there she lay at anchor in a small lake. It was back-breaking work. They moved it every year, several times sometimes, once the raiding was done, but then they came back every time to home safe, laden with treasure. The captain was unstoppable, his reputation striking fear into all he encounters, his ship's flag a huge dancing skeleton, two swords through its chest, made, they'd said, in far-off China for an emperor, and Rostov had taken it, that was the story, Nastasia, the emperor's daughter too, Rostov's woman. All could see their love, they hid nothing, she was such a striking woman. Her amazing body was covered with tattoos, great swirls and pictures all over her body, her arms, her legs, her back. On her stomach, there was the outline of the island, home safe, a thin, finely drawn line. And at its edges, five golden stars pointing angles and then four thin triangles full of Chinese characters. No one knew what it meant, but all believed it to be magic. And the captain had said she was worth an emperor's ransom, the heart of the Naninska. The boatswain never understood why. Why she stayed. She was no prisoner. She was part of the crew, into battle beside them, her sword flashing about her, fearless like a goddess. It didn't matter her worth. But she was with the captain, and that, he believed, was why she stayed. That was all that mattered, his pleasure paramount. But for him and the crew, he gave them life and hope, their future the buried treasure, its location always only known by Rostov himself. Rightly so, the boatswain felt, for everyone trusted him with their lives. He'd proved it a thousand times, more even. Home safe, the perfect example. A refuge for them all. When they retired, when they were old, a safe place for them, their families, their children. Everyone said the captain was a fine figure of a man, tall and muscled, wild black hair shot through with silver coins, golden knives circling his belt, rumoured to be from an Egyptian pharaoh. And like Nastasia, he was heavily tattooed, his sword hand the most elaborate of all. Everyone had stared. It had jewels on it, set into his skin. Five red rubies, five golden stars like Nastasia's, and then a strange set of lines and numbers. 
a magical spell, the crew believed, a gift from a wizard or a witch doctor. No one could be sure. The bosun had always been curious, but there were some things you didn't ask the captain, private things, his hand being one of them, best left to the secret of the gods, the bosun thought. The next months passed slowly. Rest and repair, that was the captain's order, and rest they did. They sang songs of Mother Russia, they drank wine, ate themselves full, and danced and were happy, all at peace. Some left to work on the Naninska, the running repairs, making her ready. She was a fine ship, Dutch, fast, well made, stolen from a fat silk merchant by the captain. But she had to be ready for anything, for they were pirates and they all had a bounty on their heads. And the crew knew this. The Nininska was their protection, her sharp keel slashing through the water, her strong sails whipping them away from any pursuers. Old Piotr, the carpenter, was inking some of the men, marking their skins. It happened every home-safe visit. No one knew when it had started. Twenty years back, some had said, he used a fine steel blade, rare ink from India. And there he would mark with his keen eye. It had even been rumoured he'd once been a painter at the court of the Tsar. But each visit from each man to home safe was marked on their skin by a fine two-curved line, a seabird, the great albatross, each wing a different colour, inked onto their sword arm. The little images, year on year, slowly spreading from the wrist to the shoulder, almost a stripe, and all the men wore them proudly. The captain himself had many, and strangely Nastasia had none, for her body was already full, her skin a mass of dragons and fantastical creatures, and of course her map of home safe. All the children fascinated by them, she weaved elaborate stories for them around the fire. But best of all, they loved to see the captain's hand, its five glittering rubies, its stars. And the bosun often watched the children's enchanted faces in the flickering firelight, entranced, bedazzled. However, soon the rest months were nearly over and the skies above were lightening, the winter passing, the high summer nearly arriving for it was time to return to the sea, to their jobs. Then the Nininska, the sea, to terrorise. The battle had ended, but it was terrible. The long day he'd feared. Six long months had now passed, and the men had been in good spirits, the bounty good, Two Spaniards, a British merchant, and then the ambush. It had been cunning. Thick sea fog, a surprise attack. Three Japanese warships, huge, heavily cannoned, and the fighting had been fierce, desperate. And somehow they'd escaped. But the poor Naninska was in a bad way. But worse, so was the captain. The boatswain sat in his cabin, holding his arm, Nastasia wiping the poor man's bloody face. He'd been shot four times, and somehow against all the odds, 
He was still alive, barely. He'd cried and they'd piled on sail. On, he'd said, on, he'd said, the compass now fixed and set. They were going home, back to home safe, their refuge. And lookouts had been posted, the crew now on full alert, because they could not be captured, for they knew that meant certain death. A candle flickered and the bosun leant nearer, the captain now mumbling. He listened and the stars here knelt too. And finally she called for old Piotra, his carpentry skills soon to be needed. It finally happened at dawn on the wheel deck. Their captain left them. He'd ordered them to put him in his chair, the wheel before him, his eyes finally closing as the first sun touched his face. Not a man was dry-eyed, all wet. A boy played the death drum, deep and low, and the word had gone around, and Piotr had started the instruction, the captain's final order. His replacement, the bosun. None disagreed. The bosun was the best choice, his oldest friend, the man who'd fought by his side. But then they saw it. The bosun's right hand, now marked by old Piotr, now in the skin, red rubies bedecking it, gold stars numbered and lined. The captain's mark, now the bosun was the captain. But none knew of its true import, for as the bosun learnt, Nastasia was indeed worth an emperor's ransom. And he'd found that out in the flickering oil lamp and candles down in the captain's great silk-lined cabin. Rostov had drew him near, gripping him tightly, and he'd whispered away. And then he'd pushed the kneeling bosun back. And he watched as the dying legend had placed his hand on his beloved Nastasia. The bosun stared. He'd seen it. The tattoo, the golden stars, the rubies, they all lined up on the outline of home safe, on her stomach, his mark, her mark, together, one complete picture. This was much more than a tattoo. It was a map, detailed, precise, the instructions, the way to home safe, and best of all, the way to the buried treasure, for all, a kingdom, an emperor's ransom, and so much more. As always, there's new Story Hive episodes and they're being cooked up as we speak from our main platform. Now, we always like to end with a Hope the World, and today's Hope the World is Hope the World shines brighter for you than it has in the last weeks. Bye now.